In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Julian Schott, Indologist and Tibetologist, trained at institutions such as the renowned Center for the Study of Manuscript Culture at the University of Hamburg. Julian recalls his early interest in philosophy and meditation and recounts how he emerged from a period of self-destruction to find meaning and purpose in academic studies. Julian describes how he fell in love with classical Indic and Tibetan languages and details the rigorous academic atmosphere at the University of Hamburg, where he immersed in years of reading Sanskrit for many hours a day. Julian makes the case for the vital importance of primary language competency for scholars and religious practitioners alike, and offers his opinion on those who teach religious traditions without an ability to read their writings in the original languages. Julian critiques the idea of Buddhist transmission as a useful lie which is employed to encourage behavior in line with the religion's soteriological aims, and reflects on his own evolving journey as both a scholar and practitioner. So without further ado, Dr. Julian Schott. Dr. Julian Schott, welcome to the podcast. Well, I'm very delighted to be talking with you today. We're going to talk about your life, scholarship, uh, scholarship in general, the academy in general, primary language learning, and your specific work actually recently completed some very interesting work on Indrabhuti and so on. So we'll talk a bit about that too. But first of all, could you say something a bit about your background? What was the context of your upbringing and how was it that you became interested in the sorts of things we're discussing today? Yeah, I was born in Northern Germany. Uh, very fellow, uh, very regular fellow of a, you know, very regular environment, you know, nothing special, you know, uh, not particularly rich, not particularly poor, I guess, uh, pretty much average. And um, at least, let's say, for Northern German environment. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was, I think I had a pretty much normal uh, childhood and upbringing and teenager years you know like everybody you know a mixture of uh, you know um, different emotions let's say when you grow up yeah who uh, who doesn't experience this so and yeah i know at one point basically with regard to the interest for uh, buddhism indology tibetology and all of these areas i think it was a shared interest of me and some uh, close friends you know who like to uh, play philosopher in the evening, you know, uh, like after, you know, taking some uh, stimulating uh, substances or having a beer or something like that. Yeah. And uh, we just had our, you know, uh, yeah, we just had our philosophy sessions and we're interested in different religions and, uh, and thinking and, you know, like a little bit, let's say, on the introvert uh, nerd uh, spectrum. And uh, yeah, at one point, you know, we just went to meditation centers. We checked out how it is in the Zen center, you know, like Hamburg is a big place. Yeah? So you have all kinds of lineages and directions uh, around you, all kinds of things you can try. And um, yeah, so we, there is this, this small group of uh, good friends of us who tried many things together and who always felt this inclination to uh, Buddhism, or let's say Asian uh, Asian religion as a whole, yeah, and yeah, we just pursued that path basically until today. Yeah? So just at one point that I decided uh, to try to 
uh, engage more into a hobby until the hobby turned out to become, let's say, uh, uh, a life occupying um, interest. Yeah. Which also then made me finally to study and uh, to pursue an academic career. Did you have a, a kind of religious background at all Did you, in your family? Was there a religious context there? And I'm also curious about those initial forays into the local meditation centers. What did you discover there? What was your experience as you tried Zen and different styles? So first of all, I think in my family, there was not a particular sense of uh, religion. Uh, maybe though what you could call uh, spirituality in some sense, possibly. So like my 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 ma, she was always very interested, let's say, in uh, stuff that I would consider esoteric nonsense, yeah? at least when I was growing up. Yeah, But there was at least this kind of uh, sense towards uh, spirituality in whatever way you might call it, you know, let's say a little bit alternative medicine here or there or something like that. Yeah? And um with regard to your second question, what was it that we discovered? I, I think we didn't even really know what we were looking for. I suppose we just had this sense um, that there is something to experience which we don't really know. And we were just, uh, I guess, inspired by these life stories of a historical Buddha, yeah, or this idea, you know, of people who had you know, special faculties, you know, that, that there is just more, let's say, to your being than hanging around dump in, 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 in front of the PlayStation or something like this. Yeah. So we just had the sense that there is more. And I think we just tried out because of, um, let's say, causes and conditions, connections, people we know without that we are really knowing what we are looking for. I think it was more like an undefined curiosity, let's say. Yeah. And what did we experience? I think um, these long sessions, as you may well know, they, um, yeah, they, they, they maybe bring you a little bit somewhere else. Yeah. It's like a moment, you know, in which you, you're just with you, you know, like things are not good or bad and uh, ne not necessarily, you know, have you to try to prove or disprove anything, you know, like be in contact and define yourself, you know, in relation to the rest of the group, like an ordinary activity. Yeah? So that certainly gives a certain sense of relaxation and calmness, I suppose. Yeah? Especially when growing up, maybe. And were you drawn to any particular sect at that time? You know, I, I very much like the uh, just sitting, you know, uh, just sitting was always very nice. Sort of then always good yeah and then i think it's also the simplicity you know i always had this inclination to towards simplicity probably also therefore we were drawn there you know simple things yeah so in some in in some respect you can say this this idea that you see a certain beauty and elegance in very simple uh very simple and clear uh forms yeah. and we we're discussing before we began that you know in some ways there are two streams we could discuss your own personal, I suppose, religious or practice journey, mm. sense, right? And how that unfolded and also your academic trajectory. And I'm interested in both of those, the degree to which you want to discuss your personal religious um, mm. journey is, is up to you, of course, but I'm very interested in it. So I'm wondering if there are any key points at this point, uh, at this stage, right before you're beginning to attend university, Gutenberg, Pune, Hamburg, these sorts of places you, you trained in. Um, 
either personally or academically? Are, are there any key points that we should we should mention here? Yeah, probably. I think so. Um, you know what? I could see with myself um, that I was on the verge of, uh, let's say, self-destruction uh, because I did not feel at one point uh, I say a lot of meaning and sense. So you see, like what what I think, what all, what what all of my friends and I, what we shared, um, is a sense of meaninglessness uh, that you feel, you know, towards stuff. Let's say, you know, you you could say this in Tibetan terms that let's say when you're you know, when, when you think that ultimately nothing really matters, and you know, like if, if, let's say, if you have this kind of philosophical thoughts, you know, then things can feel very empty. Yeah? And, um, and I think people who feel like this, they have the tendency to be a little bit self-destructive, yeah? because of course it's not feeling nice. Yeah? And usually um uh, people feel fill the void not necessarily with positive things yeah? seems to be a human tendency um so yes so then you know at one point uh, of course um yeah when 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 you feel that it's that it's getting too much with you you know then you know then people you know like either they are getting more destructive you know or they somehow turn around and change something and uh, for whatever reason you know um i had the good fortune to do the second yeah to go down the second option and then i decided to pursue my studies and um, i did this i think uh very industrious and compared to what I did previously in school, you know, like, I mean, I graduated uh, together with my good friend, uh, who also now uh, is, is a doctor and like quite successful and let's say comparatively well educated. Huh? Um, uh, we are graduated as the worst graduates in the history of our, of our high school. Yeah. <laughs> and people were telling us, you will never, you know, manage to become anything, never anything good will come out of you too. Yeah. This is what we have been told. And, you know, in some sense, at one point, I thought to myself, um, uh, okay, I, let's, let's accept the challenge. Yeah? <laughs> what were your preferred means of self-destruction at that time? I'd say partying. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was the, the, the only thing uh, that was keeping me from it, that I was very good at sports. And I was, uh, at one point, there was, I was on the verge um, of, entering a professional uh, football club um soccer yeah um and uh but but i destroyed my um my body fairly well with heavy injuries you know already at an early age you know and this then at one point even made it worse yeah uh, because this one thing that was keeping me away from let's say um destroying myself even more you know was then gone yeah and this was quite a downward spiral you know was there a moment of turning it around or did it happen gradually i think um i think i i remember one particular moment at least you know in which i was walking through the supermarket um and you know i looked around and i was wondering what people might think about me yeah? And then I was thinking that 
um, such a sense uh, of paranoia at a young age uh, somehow reminds me of a lot of the depressive German classics I, I had read. You know, I always read a lot of literature. And then I thought, no, uh, you cannot be, you know, like you cannot be so destructive and self-pitying anymore. Yeah. And then, yeah, it just, you know, it just overcome me like, uh, like, I don't know, like a, an epiphany, I think, you know, how the great... Uh, or the great teacher of Homer Simpson would call, right? Yeah, you know that movie, yeah? Uh, some, I felt like Homer, I think. Yeah? First first thing in your life, get one proper thought, yeah? <laughs> and yeah, something like this. And then for some reason, you know, then I turned it around very, very quickly. And when I then started studying, you know, and, um, and, and, and you know, like doing meaningful things during the day, I encountered... Uh, that the day is full of potential, you know, like from day and night, you can do so many things, you know, incredible, you know, so much potential. And I thought, my God, you know, like, how could you be wasting um, all of these nice moments so much? Hmm. Um, yeah, and then I immersed myself, let's say. What did you immerse yourself in? Can you talk a bit about those, that initial period of, of study and training? I guess you're undergraduate at that point. Yes, yes, yes. What I immersed myself in was um, history, study of history, uh, classical Western philosophy, law, and um, classical Indian uh, language and culture and Tibetan language. So I did like several undergraduate, uh, um, several undergraduate uh, uh, courses in all of these directions yeah. yeah but you know with law and history although i find um introductory courses interesting and i also find the especially the philosophical aspect uh about a study of law i found very interesting um but when it went you know like to the point where we we're supposed to formulate cases and learn let's say the language yeah of jurisdiction um i became bored very very quickly um the same with history because i thought you know like stuff that i can read in books by myself and where there is no discussion about let's say the nature of why we are doing things but it's in some sense you know just a little bit more elaborate education uh, with no reflection about let's say the contents that we are actually looking at uh, i stopped that because it was just too boring for me. I couldn't handle it in some sense. And um, it was always different with languages. I think with languages, it is not like that. What do you mean by that? With languages, it's not like that. You know, I think um, to learn a language, to try to discover a different way of how to see the world, um you know to understand a culture to understand you know you know how they're acting um why they're acting in, in the way they do um maybe also to get a sense of a completely different way of how to see the world and how to think and how to evaluate life um all of these things is so complex um, that it's a process that, you know, never stops and that in some sense becomes 
contradictory to what one might think, more interesting the further you go. Yeah? It's getting more and more exciting as you progress, not the opposite. Yeah? So in some sense, it is a process that doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. And I think the more you're engaged, the more curious you actually become. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is something that has, you know, in, in some sense, you can say, for instance, with law or history, it would be different, you know, if we could debate the people, you know, who, who write law text. Yeah, um, that would certainly be uh, interesting, I suppose. But ultimately, you know, especially in law, then then it's a job. And it's about, you know, like to uh, to to bend the things as far as you can bend them. And, you know, like to, let's say what what is right or wrong has nothing to do with what is just, let's say. Yeah. And that I find such a strange contradiction that I could not really see myself. Then. Arguably, I would have earned much better, but that's obviously not everything. <laughs> I see. So you, your intention was, I'm wondering, what was your intention at this time? Or, or what did you expect you would do for a, for a career, for a job upon graduation? And it seems like you were leaning a little bit maybe towards law, but you eventually redirected. Is that right? Or is that not correct? Yeah, in some sense, yes. But I think it was, you know, it was by the fact that I, I found the, you know, I found the idea interesting because I thought um, one can make a difference for people if one is decent. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that was one of the thoughts I've had. I was, you know, I was thinking something you have to do in the relative world, you know? So um, I was just like trying to figure out what that could be. Yeah? Can you take us a little further then? You, you're training there and you're discovering a passion for languages, actually. That emerged as being the most consistently fascinating and engaging of the subjects you've begun to study. Is that, and so can you say a little bit more about that? Your, your language training reached a very high level at institutions like the University of Hamburg and so on very rigorous, notoriously rigorous programs producing very, very high quality scholarship, etc. So I'm wondering if you could give us a sense of what it's like, what it was like for you inside those kinds of institutions in that kind of environment. Um, you know, like, I would say I, I uh, saw for the first time, uh, what it means um, to really be passionate about something. And at the same time, I also, also could see, you know, how much it actually takes um, to become also uh, accomplished in something. And I wouldn't really say that, you know, for I'm qualifying for either uh, of those two categories, uh, but at least I got a glimpse uh, into that, you know, like I, I was happy enough to be uh, studying with excellent teachers and uh, also to be studying, let's say, in a, in a surrounding of people, let's say, uh, equally uh, motivated and fascinated by by what they are doing, so it was an extremely stimulative um, environment. And you see, like the difference. Let's just say it like this: yeah? it was common sense that everybody uh, would attend all the courses all the time that were offered, regardless, you know, of how many credits they already had. Yeah, and even you know now. Um, Having a PhD, you know, and uh, having having received uh, comparatively competitive uh, fundings for scholarships and and teaching here and there at different places in the world, you know, like still I I would attend classes, hmm? 
and you see like you know we did not even count the credits anymore at one point because nobody cared actually yeah this is this kind of environment where you study something for this just for the sake of doing it yeah? um that's it and you know I remember that in my first year, uh, there were visiting scholars uh, coming to Hamburg to uh, read different things with my professor. And they were coming from all, all places over the world just because like he is a magnet for everybody who wants to read Sanskrit, you know, especially when it's things that have to do with Buddhism and tantric things. It's like, um, it's, you know, it's like you go there for asking all the questions that otherwise nobody has an answer to. Yeah. And, and, then, and then that's the end of story, you know um so you know that this was the time in it was uh, the, the non-reading period yeah so it was basically you're free to study the six weeks yeah so and then but still i went every day to university and joined these reading groups for five or six hours a day every day you know and i took courses uh, going to university every day um I took Sanskrit one to three, including uh, whatever kind of reading classes, code ecology classes, introductory classes. And I just did this every year, like everybody else, you know. And so I think what happened is at one point that we figured out, oh, you know what? I can actually read something, you know, and read it and understand it. Hmm? And, and, you know, like this happened because for years we did nothing else than, you know, like studying that stuff for hours every day, yeah. And it's the same in workshops, you know. The only thing we do is reading, like for weeks and weeks, yeah, every day, all kinds of stuff, you know. And you know, like still, I'm lacking like extremely many qualifications, but probably I think that we maybe, you know, read in one term as much as an average student during their entire career, yeah. And that makes a difference, you know. And I'd say when you do this and, and you feel, you know, that, you know, that you start developing like a sense, you know, that you cannot really express, you know, and then, and then sometimes you encounter yourself that, you know, like that you get a correction or an intuitive understanding, um, for instance, that you would later find, um, that you would later find, um, let's say, validated in the sense that you see ah that's actually you know that's actually for instance uh, a reading i find somewhere in an old manuscript or something like this and then you think okay slowly very slowly you know i'm trying to get a sense you know and in that moment you know then then something happens in which like you you develop an in, in an interest and an inclination that um, that makes you to want more, not less. It's not like that you have the feeling, I now achieved something, but it's more like that you have the feeling, I have a glimpse of what it could be to really achieve it, you know, and then it's inspiring you even more. Yeah? And the longer you're there, you know, the more you do. Yeah? It's like, you know, it's like in meditation or when you fall in love or what, whatever it may be, you know, once you see how good something it, it it's it's you know a little bit like a drug almost yeah you could say uh, just one that uh, doesn't destroy you but that makes you uh, nicer and calmer and maybe a little bit more useful also for others who are interested in this funny things we're interested in yeah. that's fascinating and around that same time you're also over six years studying tibetan classical tibetan yeah. adding that to your sanskrit mm. 
yeah, I did this, uh, let's say, um, kind of like almost everybody who is interested in Buddhist texts, you know, especially in tantric stuff, since we know that many things are only available in, in Tibetan. Of course, at one point, everybody needs to read Tibetan. And I did it like almost all of my colleagues. We just acquired this in some sense um, in, in, let's say, learning by doing. Yeah? I could not even really say that of course, I took introductory courses, grammar, a little bit here and there, but, you know, in some sense, it was like a self-teaching, you know, like you put the text next to each other, you start comparing, and at one point, you know, like you get get how it works, yeah? Sanskrit to Tibetan, you mean? You're yes. working, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. So I wonder if you might share some other of the methods you employed in that immersion. Or of course, there's an introductory period of, grammar, etc., that one, uh, one goes through. What about after that introductory level? You have however long, for some people maybe in that sort of environment, it's a year or two, but for others, maybe longer. And then there's a chasm between, okay, a basic idea of the grammar, of course, can, can read uh, to an extent, vocabulary is, is, is somewhat there, but there's a chasm, an intermediate chasm. Did you use any particular methods uh, you've talked about here go going from taking a translation or Tibetan mm. Sanskrit and going between them, for example. Did you do interlinear translations in, in German and Sanskrit? Uh, what methods were you using? Or is it just raw immersion? Difficult to say. I mean, I guess um, the method would be more um, seeing the light in the end of the tunnel. Yeah, uh, be Because, you know, like when you, for instance, see um, that this intermediate period, I think it ex is extremely long. Yeah, in the sense that um, you really need to train yourself quite well and, until you get this feeling, um, like like this intuitive feeling that you do not really need to think about why stuff is wrong or correct. It's almost like you just know. I mean, it's in the sense that you know. Like, I think like people how how people would define intuition maybe. Yeah, it's a sort of um, it's a sort of knowledge um, that you know, is, is not required by reflecting on previous uh, categories of right and wrong. Yeah, it's uh, in some sense like an intermediate, uh, an intermediate knowing, let's say. Uh, um, yeah, but but I think this intermediate period uh, of, of, of studying is a little bit depressing sometimes. Yeah, uh, because when you see yourself that you prepare a text for hours, yeah, really like for hours, for hours, for hours, and then you go, and then somebody says, yeah, yeah, it's a cute idea, but actually, if you look at like this, 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 and this, you really should understand, and boom, you know, and everything makes sense, you know, like in a split second, you think like, my God, you know, like, how should I ever become like this, yeah? Um, yeah, but at one point, uh, you find yourself, you know, like able, let's say, to communicate uh, and, and it suddenly happens, you know, you do not even know why it's I, I think, and this is then when maybe this intermediate period ends that you just gave up, you know, uh, on your idea of ever achieving uh, really something, but you thought, okay, I just do as good as I can, and you relax, you know, and then suddenly at one point, you know, there maybe comes a flow. Yeah. Um, yeah, so in some sense, when you accept that you will never be accomplished, you know, uh, then it's easier. Yeah? You know, that's something I'd like to ask you a bit about in this field of uh, Indology or Buddhist studies, is this role of primary language skill. 
we were talking earlier about um, A.E. Houseman and people of that generation, these tremendously gifted and skilled philologists and the tremendous level of that generation, their ability to enter into these sorts of languages and really master them was a sort of prerequisite in a sense for, for scholarship. Uh, now the standard seems somewhat different. So I'm wondering if you might talk about that. What do you, how do you see the role of primary language skill, competency, or maybe even mastery in this field? How do you think it's changed? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So very shortly, um, each of these points, I think. Uh, uh, probably, you know, you could talk on each of these points a very long time. Um, but I think that especially, um, let's say, in Buddhist studies, or not only in Buddhist studies, but everything that previously was called Orientalism, um, that since these, you know, since the role of of the book and uh, of language and writing and mastery of uh, of that was always considered to be um, very very important uh, by all of these traditions. Um, I think that therefore they have developed, you know, um, very sophisticated languages, particularly Sanskrit, of course, and. You know, and naturally, um, it would then require, in in order to 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 fully uh, grasp all of that, that you read uh, an incredible amount of literature. Yeah. So you know, like a culture that is famed uh, for literature and for which uh, the the book and literary study has an extremely uh, uh, high status, um, it would then naturally of this is naturally of case, of course, that they produce an enormous amount of stuff. Yeah. So I think by no means was Indian uh, was was Indian culture mainly one that's oral. It's probably one of these myths that people often say, you know, that we have oral cultures, um, which is nonsense, of course. If you see that there is hardly any culture who pro- produced such a vast, you know, array of um, of writing in all disciplines, you know mathematics astrology sciences yeah um it's, it's of course great but even more than this of course some of the most astonishing poems probably that the world would ever see yeah that functions not only on the level of let's say uh, content but, but but that you know that provides you an incredible amount of meter you know that is that that has its beauty just from sound yeah and you know like from the elegancy of puns and plays that that you have which is you know which is just astonishing you know it's just astonishing and it's it's even more astonishing that people are able you know to come up with such stuff yeah and so when you know it is like this then of course you wonder you know like how to really understand um people's minds which is what we want to do if we want to read the text that they produce without having even a shred uh, you know of um of the knowledge that those people have had you know so i think that people in the past uh, earlier scholars who were trained in classical greek and uh, latin or hebrew and other languages yeah uh, early on, yeah, really early on. I mean, when we talk about aristocratic societies, and I think that they had a sense, you know, 
for what it takes uh, to understand a different culture through language. Um, because, you know, they were trained in, in, uh, in doing that and also in seeing, you know, the levels of accomplishment in, in terms of uh, language that other cultures achieved. And, yeah, it, therefore it was natural that language study would be, you know, the primary focus of everybody's education when you want to learn about a foreign culture or religion or, or whatever it may be. So that would be, you know, the part about history. And, you know, like coming, you know, of, of course, what we are nowadays working with is to a large extent is owed um, to people of the book, let's say. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, like people of the book, you know, may find it easier, you know, to understand other people of the book from different culture, because at least, you know, they have appreciation for, for primary language study. Um, but in the course of time, um, this seemed to have faded for a number of reasons, um, some of them political, um, some of them economical. But to make a long story short, um, these, you know, uh, these aristocratic societies with the high level of language achievement uh, are not existing anymore, and it's nobody's aim at universities to produce uh, such people any longer, um, for a number of reasons. Um, one of them probably is that, you know, like small language departments, or even uh, not even to mention philological departments, you know, uh, they are not very lucrative. Yeah? They are not bringing in a lot of students, um, and people, you know, need to really devote themselves almost you would think almost need to devote their lives, you know, to become, um, to become uh, like the great philologists of the past. Yeah. So, um, and all of these things, you know, um, let's say there is a very bad mundane reward uh, for doing this for both the institutions and the individuals yeah? in most cases. So it seems that in our times, uh, such achievements are not valued for their, let's say, uh, for their potential contribution uh, towards knowledge, which is valued as a thing uh, that is, in some sense, self-evidently um, achievable uh, or should be achieved. Mm. Yeah, something like this, I guess. And yeah, of course, then um, when, when you see that primary language studies goes away, 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 of course, at the same time, we need to rely on um, other, other means of um, acquiring knowledge. And many of them are nowadays, I think, contemporary methodologies. Uh, but these are very limited, um, simply because, you know, how, how, no, no matter how good our participatory observation is, or how good our question catalog, you know, for contemporary practitioners of other cultures may be, I think that still we have a we will have a hard time to understand precisely the concepts they are talking about because we cannot presuppose that they understand the words in the same way as we do, and this is uh, I think the language barrier that is almost um, that I mean maybe you know you can reduce it uh, if you're very smart, but I think you cannot ultimately eliminate uh, 
the fact that you know when i translate uh, i don't know have we wrote that can mean mind in sanskrit and tibetan into mind and even if i may be smart and define different mind states um still you know like when they use indigenous terminology and i have not the slightest idea about what this implies and i cannot develop a feeling towards the different notions that should be expressed in different contents then to some extent my my translation attempts will always remain superficial and i do not really see that um yeah i do not really see that you know without the transfer uh, of language that we can do a successful transfer of culture and i just really doubt that this is and uh, that this is going to work that's maybe how i would try to answer that question so it's understandable and conceivable that the development developments are like they are you know like uh, yet it is maybe not in the best interest of everybody who actually really is interested you know in the let's say um in in what these uh, cultures have to offer yeah might it be you know meditation uh, yoga uh, whatever contemporary mindfulness stuff it might be yeah. yeah it's very interesting i interviewed somebody recently who ordained as a raper in fact and mm -hmm. has taught uh American man taught as a raper and teaches now also Dzogchen. He was expressing a great affinity Indian and Tibetan culture. Uh, he he visited India and found he had a great affinity. And I asked him if that affinity extended to the languages. And he said that he had not really studied the languages. And there were a couple of reasons for it. Hmm. Uh, one of them was that his teachers had recommended he not do that, in fact. He quotes uh, Rinpoche as saying, you already know how to suffer in English, why do you want to learn how to suffer in Tibetan? <laughs> yeah. And one does sometimes hear that. And um, so he was dissuaded from that. And he reflected that, in fact, he said that he's glad he didn't waste his time in his earlier years learning Tibetan, when instead he practiced. And then he said that it's easier to learn a new language than it is to, uh, you know, I suppose, be, become enlightened. I think he said sort of, you know, transcend the ego or something, something like that, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting, an interesting perspective. Um, certainly the, uh, your, the language study that you're describing uh, is practically a religious vocation. <laughs> that sort of those many hours of immersion uh, in such a in such an environment it, it requires, it seems, a, a huge amount of devotion and dedication. What do you think of that view? It's a view that one encounters often. What do you think mm. of that that kind of a view? I think um, I would I would say whatever floats your boat. Huh? Um, that would be my answer probably. So I think. You know, of course, in order to practice meditation, uh, obviously, you not need to learn uh, other languages. I agree to that. Yeah. Why should you? Uh, I mean, if we just would assume that there were people meditating also before the Buddha Shakyamuni, and obviously, there, at least according to the story, there were three enlightened masters who might have spoken different languages. Obviously, they were also not required to study Sanskrit in order to do that. Yeah. So, um, from that point of view, mm, you know, I, I would fully agree. Um, 
On the other hand, I would say if we talk about the meaning um, that is carried by languages, I would I would think that um, we would be pretty isolated if we would not have means of translation. Hmm? And, and I also believe that on an individual level, yes, I agree, uh, but I'm not sure if this is working, you know, on a global scale, uh, what, what is being described there. So I, I, would, I would probably reply that, yes, uh, depending on, let's say, uh, the framework in, in within which you apply such an idea. So I believe, for instance, that, um, that the Tibetan methods, yeah, and that you can learn many from them, and I would argue that when that Repa person, you know, um, could not have relied on some people who made the effort to culturally and emotionally translate some of that knowledge to which he obviously felt a big inclination, you know, that he maybe never even would have encountered uh, the concept of awakening according to Buddhist traditions. Um, so I would say it's easy to say when somebody, you know, it's easy to lie uh, down in a bed that somebody else already prepared for you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like maybe, yes, when you're already living in such an environment, okay, fair enough. At one point, it might not be necessary anymore. But, you know, if there might be things that still could be achieved and uh, learned and that there is maybe things that, you know, generations could benefit from you know then you know at least on the relative level there might still be stuff to do and maybe he would look at it differently if he would live at a different time in which he is not fortunate enough to not be needing um, to learn a different language so i think it's a matter of perspective very interesting indeed i'm curious if we also consider the personal practice or personal religious side. How did that um, evolve during this period of intense study that you've summarized here? Hmm. Um, I think it evolved in the sense that um, first, you know, let's say it like this, yeah? Especially in Tibetan Buddhism, you're asked uh, to trust your teacher, right? And at the same time, you're asked to check each other. Um, so then I'm wondering, uh, I should, let's say, um, I should, I should trust somebody, um, without actually knowing, uh, the categories according to which, uh, trust should or should not be developed. Hmm? So this feels a bit like a contradiction. Right. And I think everybody who studies sooner or later um, falls into this abyss, let's say, uh, within which you find yourself uh, um, floating, you know, between like, uh, in, in, in some sense, two walls that do not seem necessarily to, um, to, 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 to ever move. Yeah. So either, uh, you know, like either, let's say, you're um, the negativistic uh, uh, debating uh, non-trust type, yeah, the intellectual, or 
your uh, the positivistic, mystical, uh, somewhat uh, devoted, but unfortunately very naive type. Yeah? And I do think um, that the combination of practice and study is supposed to, you know, tear down uh, such, you know, uh, like stupid living in extremes. Mm -hmm. But I think it needs time because ultimately I have the feeling that at least if you look at the practice of Buddhism and how it evolved, you know, around the world, you know, how it adapted and how it changed and how difficult it is to reconstruct these processes and to either even figure out what somebody really wrote, you know, what somebody really said and how it really should be interpreted. And that there is a lot of unknowns and, you know, that with increasing knowledge, you figure out that these unknowns, they increase rather than decrease. Until I think you see yourself at the point that you just re reject or adopt, yeah, like Langdor, this famous uh, concept in Tibetan, huh? um, what, what you can, you know, agree to and what seems to work for you as an individual without the need to make a universal concept about it, which I think uh, qualifies people who have a, a lack of trust in the true sense. You know, if you if you would have trust in what you're doing and that it's of your benefit, I would think that it's not necessarily, uh, necessarily important for you that everybody else feels the same, right? Um, but this seems to be natural tendency. And I think this becomes from the fact that we often are trained in some sense to believe that there is there is or at least should be something we can ultimately rely on, something that's truly objective, something that's truly working. But unfortunately, we'll never find such a thing. And also not, let's say, in the scholarly sphere. We will find that neither. So I think it's a very liberating process. That's how I would describe it, because you're liberated uh, from believing what other people tell you um, on account of things they actually do not really know or have not investigated. Yeah. It's, like, it's, it's like you stop following hearsay and uh, you start trusting what you experience and see yourself. And at the same time, you know it's not everybody's truth, it's your truth, and it's okay that it is like that. So in some sense, you can let go of, uh, the, of, of this you know, overachieving um, attitude, you know, to always need to find something that's ultimately proof for something that's ultimately reliable for everybody, the big truth, you know, uh, that is somewhere out there. At least this is how I feel about it. I can imagine that creates some complications when interfacing with institutional religion, at least. Mm, yes, I think it does. Uh, some people appreciate um let's say that that uh, that sense of critical thought and others don't mm, which is also kind of natural i think you know it's also m maybe more like a spectrum you know in that sense that some people you know they seem to do better in uh, more let's say with more rules and other people they seem to do better uh, with no rules um and there seem to be people who do better in a very progressive environment because it seems to suit, let's say, their, let's say their psychological structure more, you know, uh, more than others. Mm -hmm. 
And again, I would not necessarily say that one that either of them is better or worse. It is really all a matter of perspective. And this is what I would what I really say what what I would have learned uh, from my scholarly discourse looking at Buddhism um, and looking, you know, at statements that are being made about the religion, trying to check these, you know, can I actually find that, you know, in the text? Can I really see this? Mm, do I trust this? And when I see that there is uh, that, let's say, I think more things are actually interpretations um, rather than um, observations, you know. And when I see that uh, one interpretation might not necessarily, that I would, might not necessarily agree to it, although it's certainly a way to interpret your observation, yeah, but I might come to a different conclusion, then I would say at that point, well, uh, that's all right that you do it like this, but it's also all right if I do it differently. And to, I think it is good to develop the freedom that in some sense might not sound uh, uh, correct, but nevertheless, I would say it. I mean, in some sense, you can make your own dharma. Yeah? And I think this is actually what people have done uh, pretty much from the beginning, mm-hmm. only that it's often not observed. It seems that uh, there is the imperative to follow some particular uh, tradition. Yeah, But for me, it's not at all self-evident that why should you follow something that claims to be original, although I can very easily show that they are by no means original in the sense that they are authentic just because they were there from the very beginning, which is not the case. You know, none of the Tibetan traditions were there from the beginning. You know, they were formed and they based themselves on different assumptions. Many of them, you know, of course, founded in Indian religion, you know, uh, but more of them have nothing to do with that, at least not in terms of their origin. And, you know, then I do not really see any point, you know, of why a Westerner should not be able to claim uh, the same authority for themselves, which is nothing else than I take responsibility for what I'm doing and I'm doing it according to the way you know, that works for me. So uh, that's, that's how, I would, how I would see it. And again, it doesn't mean uh, that I'm not respecting what other people are doing. It's not necessarily that I agree to everything that they are doing according to the aim that I have. I wonder if you might give an example or two of an assumption or something that's said about Buddhism, for example, that upon closer inspection, you that you first believed or first helped, you know, assumed was correct. At closer inspection, you came to a different view. Yes. Um, let's say, for instance, that um, what 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 about the idea of transmission? I think that's a very good one. Yeah. So I think transmission is one of the arguments um, that are laid down very, very quickly when it's about, you know, why should something be done in way A and not done in way B? Because it is transmitted like that. And usually the claim is it goes back to Buddha, yeah? to the authentic source. I mean, that's, you know, in, in some sense, the self-understanding and at the same time verification for every practices that is being done throughout uh, Tibetan Buddhism. I mean, of course, it's an oversimplification, but I think uh, it's not too far stretched to assume this as a general working mode. Yeah. 
And that's what they assume about themselves, at least. And this is how they can justify what they do yeah, in front of themselves. Not so much me, but in front of themselves. So if I want to become a Tibetan Buddhist or I learned something, then it's being said to me, you have to do this, 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 this in this way, because that's how it's transmitted. Yeah. But then I would ask, you know, transmitted from whom, by whom and when. Yeah. And, you know, then they reconstruct a lineage for me. Yeah. They say, you know, then this is why it goes back to Buddha. But if you look at it, of course, you see that there is so many uh, rhetorics, um, that there is so many didactics, that there is so many interpretations and uh, among the things, like so many interpolation among uh, like actual lineages and traditions, yeah, that at one point you really do not have the feeling that you can follow that as if it is historically speaking really true you know it is so forced yeah it is so forced that it really has to do more with the let's say construct that supports your your idea of how um satirologically speaking uh, liberation should work yeah that uh, that that you have the feeling it is more a belief you know, than anything else, yeah, and I think usually we are being taught that, at least in contemporary modern ways, that Buddhism is uh, a science, uh, it's the science of how the mind works, and this has nothing to do with belief, not at all, you know, and if it's the science of how mind works, and somebody figures out an effective method, you know, that turns, you know, um, into that is maybe then being transmitted because it's effectively but it may not have started with the buddha or maybe not even with somebody who called him or herself a buddhist i would not see how that in any way would be in contradiction with what buddhism aspires to be so therefore i think that you know the argue of transmission um, or the argument of transmission is actually um, not a very good one if you think clearly about it and again that does not mean that it's not good to rely on something uh, that has been practiced and trained a lot and you know according to the transmission of which people you know can um, give you very profound and, and thorough instructions that might help you nothing like this nothing against that but i just think that you know the self-justification that is being used is not necessarily one that can, you know, withstand a critical analysis. So therefore, I think you could also say, if you're truly progressive, you drop all of these ideas altogether because they actually do not serve any other purpose than calming you that you have trust in what you do. And therefore, it's a didactical tool. Nothing more, nothing less. And again, it's nothing wrong about it. But, of course, the claim, why it is there, is in some sense a lie. It's a clever lie, yeah? Why? Because it makes people to trust in something so that they would do something useful. So it's, a, you know, um, and I would say, you, if you do not want to say, call it a useful lie, because it sounds very harsh, you could at least say, you know, it's a very dynamic worldview, yeah? And I think there is a lot of very dynamic views in, in, in Buddhism because what they ultimately want to achieve is, you know, to justify 
why they do so that would people would would trust it and then you know practice accordingly to what some people think should be done and half of the stuff is of course political i don't know does this serve as an uh, as an example that makes sense yes and presumably the means of critical analysis that you're referring to would be historical investigation and also textual investigation yes. using primary language skills and primary sources and so on of course yes yes sure and i mean you you see that you know there's lots of debate of course within the tradition itself i mean it's by no means it's by no means the case that there is any form of a conformative view not even about let's say the fundamentals yeah among the schools and then when somebody says you know i mean then you encounter that there is two completely you know opposite views and both of them claim they are original because they have a proper transmission line well what should you do with such an argument yeah obviously it does not work so then you ask yourself so why are you saying this so obviously because it means something else yeah? if you translate it let's say according to whatever let's say uh, psychological, sociological, anthropological, wh whatever kinds of categories you want to come up with about which, frankly, I don't care at all because I think it doesn't matter how you call something. But when you see, you know, that something is being said and something else is being meant, you know, um, then obviously, you know, we have a little discrepancy be between should I take things literal or not? Yeah. And for instance, to uh, achieve a certain sense of sensibility uh, towards these matters, which you, uh, which you investigate all the time, you know, uh, helps you to distinguish, um, let's say, something essential uh, from something maybe, let's say, um, let's just say less essential. Yeah. So part of what you're saying is that historical claim is being made that's not historically verifiable to communicate or achieve a name. Yeah, well, that's, yes, very interesting. Let me ask this then. Another another way that one hears transmission spoken about mm. is the thing that's being transmitted is not only the set of rituals and techniques and uh, perhaps uh, intellectual frameworks, philosophies, uh, worldviews, and so on. It's also some kind of realization, okay? Mm. Some sort of uh, special. <clears throat> source yeah or special juice uh -huh. that goes from con container to container now of course mm. that doesn't that doesn't uh, address your query about why are historical claims being made and not meant historically well what do you think of that side of things well the, the point isn't so much what you know which hand you hold the the bell in or whatever the case mm. may be yeah, or, yeah. Uh, which order the syllables of the mantra are in maybe that's Maybe we can, if we retreat from that, well, it's it's, it's it's essentially there's some sort of special transmission of of enlightenment yeah. that's coming through. So mm. I know enlightenment because my teacher transmitted that. That's a little bit like in Zen, isn't it? In a way, that's kind of the idea of the Inca transmission um, in certain interpretations mm. of that in Zen. Of course, sometimes yes, mm. it's an institutional process too. But there is there is a sense in in certain Zen lineages in which naming someone a Dharma successor, for example is saying this person gets it they get the point of it yeah. they get the enlightenment so what mm -hmm. about that dimension of um of transmission what do you feel about that i feel it's primarily something that's esoteric 
I mean esoteric, I mean not in the sense of occult, yeah, um, not in that sense, but esoteric in the sense of opposed to exoteric. Let's say, I mean, what I would, I mean, what I mean there with esoteric is particularly uh, tantric. So, you know, and I think that this is precisely something, let's say, that is a very, yeah, I would call that probably affirmistic, mystical uh, approach towards negativistic intellectual approach. Um, but obviously, there were people that, you know, without these ideas of empowerment, yeah, uh, I don't know, Adishtana or Abhisheka and, uh, or Wankur in Tibetan, that without, that these concepts ever existed uh, until a certain period, or at least not in the context of uh, awakening, you know, that also without them, there seems to have been consensus on the fact that Buddhahood is achievable. Mm. So I would again argue that might be one way. Mm. Um, and of course, then rhetoric goes that, mm, you know, let's say the successors, uh, they seem to, you know, you know, they do not only want to seem to, to success their, their, <laughs> their predecessors, but they also seem to want to, um, um, I don't know how to formulate that in a coherent way it seems to me that it's not enough you know to just be in somebody's tradition but you also want to you know achieve more than your predecessors it's in the sense you know i want to become better than my own master and there seems to be you know a lot of ideas that when somebody discovers something that they feel you know very strongly about that they also would like to promote that because they think their ideas are better than others, other people's ideas that were before them. They, you know, let's say they have progressed on the past, you know, they have performed their, their happens evolution, you know. And in some sense, tantric Buddhism is the last stage of evolution of Buddhism in India. So it was considered to be the most advanced form of Buddhism. But I think that in the, the rhetoric, at least, nobody would have claimed that within, uh, let's say, the Mahayana, non-tantric uh, non -tantric Mahayana Buddhism, people cannot gain awakening. But there does not seem to be this idea of um, that, there, that there is something, that there is some spark transmitted without which you cannot manage. And it would evidently be in direct contrast to the Buddha's awakening. Even though, of course, they managed to reconstruct there some stuff, you know, like and come up with all kinds of theories and things there. But let's say looking at it, it's, look, just looking at the information that we have, it seems to me that um, the spark that is being transmitted uh, might be very helpful and might give you a boost, yeah? Uh, if if that's really truly there, but on the other hand, it seems that other people also seem to do pretty well without that. Um, so, um, and you know, the thing that I'm wondering about is 
why can you know both groups just not let the others be you know <laughs> what, what 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 is the problem you know if somebody says you know there is something that i got some energy something subtle i said yeah you know like maybe you're more this jedi type of guy that's fine i'm not <laughs> you know uh, I, and I do not really know actually what the issue is personally. I do not. And this is, you know, this is again goes into the same direction. Yeah. That somebody says, yeah, but this is being said. So how do you harmonize it with all the rest? Why does everything always have to be in bloody harmony? You know, is that not enough? You know, that there is more than one way. The one that suits you, suits you. Fair enough. No problem, man. Yeah. Then just do this. You know, like be my guest, man. You have all my blessing for, for, for whatever that's worth you know to to you know like to pursue the goals in the way that are fine for you yeah and honestly i for me personally this is i think one of the things that i would describe as liberating in textual studies yeah i just don't care you know about uh, how many ways there are and how many ways are there constructed yeah i honestly i don't care because probably this is too many you know this is too many to count you know um, and there is too much conflicts uh, to be harmonized there. Um, and I think, you know, it's really an endeavor that, you know, gets you totally worked up. And in the end, you know, it doesn't help anybody really. Yeah? Only, you know, like you will disappoint people, you know. And I would not say, I would not see, you know, any meaning in that when there is just a bunch of guys, you know, who are all in some sense Dharma brothers and Dharma sisters or Vajra brothers and Vajra sisters or call it however you want. Yeah. So is that not enough? I don't know what you say. Isn't it enough, you know, when you find something that works for you? Is that, why does there need to be why does it need to work for everybody else i mean is it just like your fear that ultimately what you do doesn't really work so you need like some sort of you know um you know you need to belong to a group to feel better about what you're doing is that is that why yeah. and is that a good basis i mean honestly i'm i'm not i don't, I don't know but at least for me it doesn't feel like it i mean how, how would you feel about it well, uh, okay. I think. I mean, do, um, do you need to? I mean, what, what I what I would like to know there is like, do you feel that it's really necessary uh, that there is one mode established that really works? Um, do you think that's beneficial? Well, I think that's a bit too easy a question, Julian. Mm. <laughs> of course not. No, mm. I mean I'm asking you questions partly to draw out further the points you're making. Um, mm. That's partly why I'm asking these questions. I'm saying, well, one often hears the view, for example, to yeah. refer to a previous question that don't bother to learn the language. Um, uh, my teacher told me don't bother to learn the language. And I'm quoting the, 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 mm. my yeah, previous yeah. Or someone says, well, transmission, maybe uh, if we can't justify the lineage, the lineage um, tree historically, well, maybe there's some other kind of thing that's really meant by transmission. You know, one hears these views. So I'm in, in fielding them to you. I'm doing yeah. it to, to bring out um, aspects of your yeah. argument and opinion. But from my, from my point of view, if you're asking me, me that, I'm, I'm skeptical of the entire basis of the claim. Mm. actually the entire soteriological as you as you put it basis mm. um myself okay so so it's therefore a bit of a moot question mm. um, yeah but i okay. think partly part part of the attraction of 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 say transmission 
or this idea of transmission, and you've brought out so many aspects that are attached to that idea, is a lack of confidence in oneself, um, a lack of expectation of the possibility of, of should we say, um, religious success, um, mm. becoming enlightened or whatever the case may be. And one can understand, I think, the reasons, the reasons for, that, for that. There are many mm -hmm. reasons why, why that may be the case. But I think there also is a sense of, well, gosh, I have no way of knowing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to get anywhere with it, really. So I'd better align myself within a sort of tradition of experts who are enlightened, or at least knew a guy <laughs> who was enlightened <laughs> at some point, you, you know, so that I'm at least sort of trending in the right direction, broadly speaking. I think that's another reason that there's, there's an attraction, and I think that's also suggested too, you know, this idea of make your own dharma, which you, which you pointed out, is that, mm -hmm. that's criticized greatly, isn't it, for those sorts of reasons, you know, yeah, well, who knows and, what you're going to come what, up with? But you know what I find so funny, uh, precisely in this, yeah? Uh, that people did it all the time and whole traditions are based on I make my own dharma, but because they were awakened that it was okay. Right. Yeah, but did you, I mean, did you know them? How do you know? How do you verify any of that stuff, you know? That's in some sense, you know, the, 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 the dog chasing its tail, yeah? 24-7, yeah? And this is precisely what I don't buy, yeah? you know? And particularly because uh, I think that you know, when other people took freedom, um, you know, like to come up with complete new systems, let's say, yeah, um, because they found it beneficial. And I do not want to say that I'm smarter than them. You know, Lord forbid, I do not want to do any such thing. But at least, you know, why can I not at least try to combine uh, these things according to my understanding in a way that I think works for me because ultimately like who is responsible there I mean am I doing this to make somebody feel good about their ideas or do I want to achieve here something hmm? so and I think like in the end I'm responsible right I mean as it's as is nicely put you know like in the last moment we leave with empty pop we we leave with empty pockets you know the only thing we have you know is what we achieved and then you know, should I really in, in this journey, yeah, should I really base myself on the feelings of others because they feel a little bit hurt because I question the word transmission, you know? <laughs> like how foolish is that actually? Yeah. When you really think it through, yeah. I mean, then you really think, okay, you know, in that sense, you know, like the modern Dharma people, you know, they are as worse as the, you know, the political correct dudes, you know, like who claim that uh, you know, every personal truth, you know is valid uh, just just by utterance let's say yeah and uh, in which there is a big deal of emotion when you happen to see the world slightly different mm. and this is a bunch of people you know in dharma who aspire truth you know what they want is jnana right they want like buddha cognition you know they want awareness that doesn't go away they want like you know constant beyond personal um you know, mindful awareness, you know, clear light. Yeah. That's what we want. Right. Has nothing to do with Julian or Steve or call them whatever, you know. And yet, yeah, so important, you know, that lineage and tradition and sayings are kept that it's said like this and not like this, you know, that you 
turn your right side not the left side you know that you do not stretch the feet to the to the front but to the back yeah and in some sense you would say like who cares honestly like who gives a crap about all of that you know i mean i do it you know if, if it makes people feel good if i go to their home you know fair enough yeah their home their roots you know i don't mind that nothing yeah but you know i i sometimes think that people forget and they you know they would not forget if they look a little bit more of history that buddha you know he was a great deconstructivist you know like he he you know he brought up a system that is not meant to prevail but is you know that uh, ultimately you know will also be left behind you know like in the moment of awakening nobody cares about buddhism anymore right it's a concept yeah that should help you to i mean it's a concept that is meant to you know uh, to to transcend itself that's i think why people call the means skillful hmm? and knowing this yeah why then if there is such attachment to like relative stuff you know that has no ultimate meaning whatsoever yeah you know i sometimes ask this in my in my lectures when we talk about scripture in university and i ask the people you know especially those who seem to like have very strong opinion and i you know the type of uh but my uh, but my guru said the type of students you know i ask them if they think that buddha was a buddhist it's not so easy to answer actually but when you think it through of course everybody comes to the conclusion probably not yeah? so then you can say like what does buddhism mean what is it for yeah so in the end it's 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 a bunch of concepts yeah? No more, no less. Some are more useful, some are less useful, right? And obviously, we you know, when there is 84,000, like the tradition itself claims, you know, teachings that are meant uh, for the various uh, combinations of the main disturbances among the characteristics of the people, you know, then why should everybody agree on what is the best way of solving that? You know, this again, like a big, you know, there seems to be a big, big contradiction that is hiding there, you know, like very deep, you know, uh, in, in this you know, in the idea of uh, of the diversity. So there is an argument of diversity, but everybody has a big problem with diversity. Yeah? What should I do with that? Yeah? And, you know, all of these contradictions, I find in some sense very funny, you know, um, just because it shows you, you know, that by, you know, changing language and culture and, uh, you know, changing dresses and robes, you know, like none of your problems ever will be solved, you yeah? Concepts remain concepts, you know, it doesn't matter how you call them. Huh? That's at least what I, what I think. This is what I really think. And you know? this the outcome of my textual studies, you know, like of uh, having read like a tiny fraction, you know, of what is there, which is probably a lot more than most of the other people looked at so far, I suppose, yeah, who claim to precisely know uh, what Buddhism is. Yeah? Um, that's then, of course, I'm thinking like, you do not need to do this to yourself you know it can be much easier yeah? and let go of this yeah i mean what is it you know like i think that these true these yogins yeah and i think there is a reason for the fact you know that uh you know that somebody who possesses yoga yeah that yoga by also means union yeah? as as you know yeah it means practice but it also means union yeah like to huge to yoke we even have this word huh? right 
And I think it is, you know, um, I, I, I think that I would, I mean, I do not actually know the classical definition of yogin and probably my teacher would know, like shoot like several, you know, passages here and there in this tantra and that commentary whatsoever. But I think it's evident that there is, you know, certainly, you know, a union of the two truths should there be for somebody who is always, you know, fresh and new in every moment. Yeah? And certainly those people by definition are progressive. So I think somebody who is by definition progressive is, uh, uh, is not a conservative traditionalist, which does not mean that you do not have appreciation uh, for everybody that walked the same path before you, that is not the same. So, and then I think, you know, like if you want to be a Nakba, you know, uh, or even more than that, if you want, maybe if you are a Nakba and you want to become a Repa or whatever, you want to be like true yogin, yeah? um, you know, then maybe it's good to let go of like like too many ideas, particularly when you cannot even find any very verification for them in the first place. Yeah? When they do not really serve, you know, something that does not serve more than a relative purpose, you know, should not become an absolute standard in uh, in my thinking. Yeah? So fascinating what you're saying. Thank you. Incendiary. Controversial, mm. I think, to some, certainly. But uh, very interesting indeed. And, and based, as you said, on, on your thorough investigation of the texts and of, uh, of, the, of the primary languages and so on, and your experience also thinking these things through. So I appreciate very much your willingness to, to share that sort of raw edge of thinking in this context. My pleasure. <laughs> well, gosh, you know, I'd still like to ask you a bit about Indra Bhuti and all that, but perhaps it would be appropriate in some sort of a sequel at a later date. We could look at that in a bit more detail, maybe look a little bit more at some of the work you've done and the additions you've produced and so on. Yes. I think that would be okay. interesting as a separate a separate kind of discussion to what we've, we've said here. What do you think of that? Um, I think um, if, if you think um, that you would like to have more of this discussion information on your podcast which by the way um, I have obviously listened to uh, you remember I approached you right in a private message because I remembered your face from one of your podcasts from the past yeah? so obviously I, I enjoy this uh, format and also actually the diversity that you have and if you really would like to have me on another episode I, I'd be happy to I like and I enjoy our conversation yeah I, I always like this so uh, certainly Oh, splendid. We then we'll do, do that. that. We'll do that then. Well, in that case, Dr. Julian Schott, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Steve. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.